Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. I'm actually surprised to see all of you, being that it's MEA week and it's hunting season. I didn't expect anyone to be here. But anyway, I'm, so I'm thrilled that you uh, made the time with us. And in spite of it being, as it were, one of these long weekends, we're still doing our second hour Catalyst marriage training. And uh, I think some of the stuff he talks about is just good for any relationship, much less. So if you have desire for that, and then we're going to meet with whatever people have been uh, moving towards our disciple-making team, we're gonna do that from 11.30 to noon today um, in spite of just being kind of a lot of people gone and so on and so forth. So let me uh, invite you to bow with me in prayer and then we'll step into the text that we're looking at this morning. You know, Father, we sang some great songs to realize that the glory is all to you and that you will glorify and protect your name above all else that we are simply your children who have this great privilege to be in this journey to communicate the magnificent hope of the gospel to a lost world. And we ask that you will continue to uh, empower our hearts through the presence of your spirit that goes beyond the brokenness of our life and allows us to draw on the infinite resources of your presence in us so that we might live life in a godly way and in a righteous way that conforms to your expectations not simply our ideas. We ask that you will continue to allow your spirit to speak to us in powerful ways so that we are hearers of your word and not just uh, individuals who hear it but do it as well. We live in a world where we're hearing so many voices that Lord, it's hard at times for us in our human frailty to hear your voice and yet we pray this morning that this would be an opportunity for you to speak and to speak loudly into who we are and to understand the battle that we're in. We ask that you would give us the courage to surrender to your throne of grace and to the teaching of your spirit this morning, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, being in the uh, season of the year that we're in and with, uh, as it were, midterm elections, I thought it was appropriate to recognize this morning that on October 23rd, 24 years ago, a Dr. Barnett Slepian, I believe his name, was shot to death in his home by an individual who was so outraged by the whole abortion issue that he was running around killing people who were performing abortions. He was number five, as it were, on the hit list, and his, kill, uh, his killing marked the fifth straight year in a row at that point where an individual or a group of people were trying to rebel against our culture country's movement to allow abortions and uh, try to, in their mind, I guess, bring a stop to it. I'm not quite sure what is always accomplished by people who do radical things, but um, he was, uh, this doctor apparently had just got home from a religious service at their synagogue, and this individual named James Charles Kopp, who was a member of the terrorist group called Army of God, collided. Now, it's no wonder that religion takes a bad name because you've got all these radicals who are trying to be representatives of God doing extreme things for, because one group of people in the f- culture that they're at feel a freedom to kill babies and others are going to kill the ones who kill babies. I don't know where that ends. Uh, I understand the, the struggle that people go through. We all sort of feel the tension about how do we respond and deal with these things. But as I begin to think through, 
the uh, extreme responses that many people give or the no response that people give, it's no wonder we live in kind of the chaos that we do. I feel it's appropriate not only because of the season we're in, but also the text that we're going to look at. We are, uh, if you are visiting with us this morning, working through Mark 4. Uh, We would normally deal with Mark 4, 1 through 20 as a whole unit because it is what we often call the parable of the sower. I'm not sure that's the appropriate statement for it. But it's about the parable that Jesus tells about the sower going out and sowing seeds, and he uses this word picture to describe, I believe, first and foremost, the nature of his ministry to the Jews. And it's in a picture that has some sobering realities to it, and so we've decided as we move through this that we're going to section out the small pieces of the parable. Now, if you're unfamiliar with it, we uh, won't go through the process of reading everything about it, but I do want to read the first part of it. I'm going to read from, uh, I'm going to backtrack to my New American Standard, and I don't have the text up on there, so I'll invite you simply to listen, and uh, just read the first part of the story, and then we'll dive into the interpretation of the front end of it. Jesus says this, starting in Mark 4, verse 3, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow, and it came about that as he was sowing some seed, fell beside the road, or the pathway, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil and as they grew up, they increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. The disciples, after he's finished, find time to come to Jesus, and it's kind of a curious scenario because he uh, explains to them that the reason he's teaching in parables is because these people have become hardened of heart. They, the Jews especially, have had God's word delivered to them hundreds and thousands of years ago, but they had basically substituted that for their own religion. The scribes and the Pharisees had created a ton of rules and regulations to protect people from violating the word, so they had a layer of religion on top of the actual word of God, and and yet by very fact of doing that, they've created their own man-made religion that literally, Jesus said, kept people from the kingdom of God and a true relationship with him. In all of this, when they come to him, Jesus says, well, the purpose of this parable is, is really to hide the truth from people who won't listen. It's sort of, in a sense, it's to clarify what the nature of his ministry is, but it's also to condemn and conceal the truth from people who just wouldn't listen. And one of the questions I asked at the end of the service last week is, what does it take for God to get your attention? What does it take for God to get you to listen to him? Because we live in a world where everything, the final authority now becomes us as individuals. I determine my own truth, I determine my own values, I determine my own reality, and even if it conflicts with the reality of the world around me, that's okay because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Uh, I think it's really tricky to live that way because at some point you're going to run smack into a world that's very contradictory to often our own convictions of what truth is. But in any event, Jesus is telling a parable where people have often invented their own truth and they've become very hard-hearted to the reality of God's truth. And if there's anything that will come out of this parable is that God's truth doesn't submit to anybody. 
It is an objective truth determined by the character and the nature of God, and he doesn't feel compelled to cater to anybody. The reason is he's the architect of everything. He created the world and the stars, the animals, everything that's in it, including us, and he has every right to determine what the reality is and truth is. It's only our God complex and our arrogance that would seem to come back and push back on God and say, I'm not really interested in what you think truth is. We're going to determine our own. It's kind of like parenting. You know, when you get a three or four or five-year-old running around telling parents they don't know what they're talking about or I don't have to listen to you anymore, or whatever it happens to be, we just kind of chuckle as parents, unless you have to do the parenting part of it, but in any event, we, we, we think that's absurd. And in a sense, it's true. But how absurd is it that human beings would actually speak back to their creator and think that we have a better handle on truth than he does? When Jesus steps into this, he deals with this one specific passage that we're going to look at this morning, and it simply says this, it's verse 14 and 15 in your Bibles if you're following along. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in their hearts. Now, in order to understand this, I don't know how much time you spent in the parables. We've explained a little bit of the nature of it last week, but let me... uh, introduce you to the bigger picture of it, and that is there's three Gospels that have this parable written into the fabric of the text. It's Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And if you look at it, in order to get a little bit of a sense of the things that Jesus is talking about, I want to just walk you through to make some observations about what we need to understand about the text. In Mark, it simply says the sower sows the word. It doesn't give us too many more specific elements to that, but clearly the idea from Jesus' perspective is going to be God's word. If you go over to Matthew, you will see that Matthew words it a little bit more from the framework, not of a servant, but of the kingship of Christ, and he calls it the word of the kingdom. And so if you understand from that vantage point and track through Matthew, that that word of the kingdom centers on the person of Jesus who was born to be king, And Jesus has already communicated the gospel in Mark by saying, repent and believe in the gospel. So there's no way to to set aside the reality of the gospel, whether you're talking about Jesus' message or the New Testament gospel after his death and resurrection. I believe the nature of this is inaugurated by Jesus and applies uh, uh, as a continuum in terms of where we live now. But Luke refers to it as the word of God. So this is not our invention or our message. It's not what we want to communicate. It's not our personal convictions or preferences. It is God's word and it centers on the gospel. And it's important to understand that because there's an objective message that is going to be communicated that is not determined by us and should not be altered by us as long as we understand the proper context. The seed and the Satan, as I'm calling it, is an interesting parallel. You'll notice in Mark 4, He talks about the sower sowing the word and and then talks about where the word is sown, which is going to be in them or in their hearts. Uh, It's the truth from God that is communicated to people where they hear. And it's interesting because in spite of the hardness of people's hearts, they hear it and the description is really based or gives us the picture that it's put into their heart, into that spot in their life where they consciously can think and rationalize and and engage with that truth and understand the meaning of it. 
Matthew talks about it a little bit differently. He talks about anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and what was sown directly into their heart. And so that, that's, we think of heart as emotions. That's kind of our propensity, but in New Testament, Old Testament, the idea of heart is a place of rational thought, sentient awareness of, their, of who they are, the idea of creativity and logic and all that is sort of encompassed in the idea of heart. So it's in that very deep area inside of us that gives us the ability to engage in truth and engage in reality. And so as he talks about this, notice there's very little emphasis on the sower. It's just, in, all the, in each of the parallels, there's just simply a reference that there is a sower who is distributing this seed and uh, casting it out for people. Now obviously it's not done back then the way we do it now. Back then it was all usually hand done and if a person was going to sow crops into a field, they would just broadcast it. They'd carry a sack and they'd grab handfuls of seed and they'd throw it out into their midst or they would carefully line it into certain rows so that it would grow properly. Uh, we have machines that do all that for us and, uh, and, and can get ahead of that whole curve in any way we want, but the idea is broadcasting seed to whoever hears it. As we begin to think through this, uh, the other aspects that you will discover in here is not, is the relationship of the seed to the soil. He does talk about in Mark 4, when they hear, then he's gonna say Satan comes and takes away that word. That's the phraseology that's used in, in Mark. In Matthew, it says when someone hears the word and they do not understand it, then he explains the evil one has come and snatched it away and that's why they don't understand it. In Luke, it's very similar. Uh, the ones along the path are those who have heard, so there's no, there's no discussion about whether people hear it. it. The issue is what happens to it after they've heard it? What happens after that word, that, that gospel, that truth from God is planted in someone's heart? Well, again, in Luke it says, that the, one, the devil comes and takes away the word and so that they not believe and are saved. And so we have this picture as we put those three gospels together that the seed is really a reflection of God's word and I will propose to you that the, the first and foremost reality of it is the gospel. The second is that the soil that it's described in these particular texts is really a person's heart. This idea that they have the, uh, the ability to rationally engage with it and understand the basic concepts of it and uh, they can make a decision about the reality of it. And in this particular case, in this particular text, we are discovering that, that there is an active agent outside of ourselves who is trying to do everything that he can to keep individuals from hearing and responding to this particular truth. Now, just so you get a sense of what happens in here, let me just paint the four soils for you so you understand kind of where this goes. If you have read through it, you're probably familiar with it. If you haven't, then this might be helpful. Mark chapter four, we are told that the, in this first particular part of the parable, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. In the second picture, we are told that an individual seems to immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves and so immediately they will fall away under certain circumstances. And so that's the second type of soil that is there. The other is the, it is sown among the thorns and so a person's heart is sort of described as soil that has thorns and a bunch of other ugly things growing in it. And uh, then these particular things 
the desires for other things uh, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The fourth soil that's described is the soil um, that seed is sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and it bears fruit. So let me recap. The first one is described as the pathway or the road. It's uh, by the very nature of it is hard packed and uh, very little cultivated soil there to respond to. The second is rocky ground, which is kind of a mix of uh, stones and rocks and dirt and other kinds of things. The third soil is thorns. It's unhealthy because of all the clutter and everything in the world growing in there. And then the fourth one is the only one that is described as good soil. And I believe in the nature of what Jesus is talking about, this becomes an important fact in understanding the point of it. The only soil that is said to be good is the fourth one, which by the very nature of it would then tell us that there's a problem with the other three kinds of hearts or the soils that are receiving the seed and their inability, as it were, to respond to it. The purpose of this parable is, describes the nature of God's kingdom program. It really talks about the, the work that Jesus is inaugurated with because of his presence on earth and where this kingdom work is moving forward. Obviously, at some point, his death and burial or resurrection are going to play uh, a huge part in shifting this from an Old Testament Jewish kingdom, a physical kingdom that had politics and all other kinds to it, to us being transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son and being involved in the kingdom work of the gospel as it brings people into that relationship with God. But we're not here trying to build a physical kingdom for God. You'll discover that there are certain theologies like reconstructionism and kingdom theology where people believe the church today is now supposed to rebuild and recapture our countries and our nation to make them Christian again, and then thus, by doing so, ushering in the presence of Jesus. Well, we're not going to get lost in there, but that's, that's one of the modes that we try to deal with. But I believe Jesus inaugurated this kingdom program that's different than what we see in the Old Testament, but has the gospel, the good news of Jesus on the forefront of it. For Israel, if they didn't respond to Jesus as their king, there's no kingdom. He was the preeminent person. In fact, even after his resurrection, the disciples come to Jesus and they go, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? He's going, hey, that's not for you to know. Clearly kind of pushes that off and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go make disciples. And I believe that as we do here at Oak Grove, that being disciple makers and helping other people through the gospel come into God's kingdom because they receive the king, Jesus, that that's our responsibility and mission in the world. And then to help other people, those who receive that gospel, now become disciple makers who have this privilege to communicate that gospel to lost people. Now I know that's a, a mouthful, but that's uh, I think an integral part of why Jesus starts te teaching the parables. The nature of God's kingdom work is centered on the gospel. And it's inaugurated by Jesus first to the Jews and then it'll be to the Gentiles. There's two kinds of people that Jesus is going to address. Those who keep hearing but do not hear, they keep on seeing but they don't see. And Jesus made it pretty clear, I'm, I'm telling them this because they've been so hard to the true message of the gospel or to God's word that he's communicated time after time after time to them that now it's in a sense a time of condemnation and judgment. 
You won't listen to me plainly communicate the message through my prophets and kings and through my word and my priests, and so now we're going to teach in parables. But then there's those who God has granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, and the parable explains that. But one of the things that's a little bit sobering is that there are four different soils. Three of them, I believe, are described as bad. One is good. As I mentioned last week, I don't know if we can use this as a formula, but it seems pretty clear that the majority of people who hear the message are not going to respond to it. Only one is going to hear the word and accept it, and it's going to bear fruit in their lives. The other three, it doesn't happen. And so as we begin to think through this, you'll see that we've kind of outlined it this. The one that we're talking about this morning, and we'll get a little bit to some of the details, they're not able to hear and understand because the seed is snatched away. It's not because they haven't listened properly, it's not because they haven't tried to examine it or anything like that, that there is an enemy called Satan who comes in and aggressively takes the word away so that they really don't have any chance to meditate or reflect on it at all. I believe if you're looking for evidence of this in the world or in people's lives, people will just basically say this is stupid information. It's foolishness. They'll just think it's silly. Believing in Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and I need to trust this guy who probably was just a human teacher and a rabbi, why would I do that? That just sounds stupid. And that's, to me, as I look at the nature of the text, that will be very characteristic of when Satan has come in and snatched the word, it just sounds stupid to them. Uh, for other people, uh, as 1 Corinthians would talk about, it's a stumbling block. And you will see that clearly in the New Testament when Jesus was interacting with the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes, they were ticked. Jesus was a major stumbling block to not only rub against the religion that they had created, but it seemed to violate everything that they believed in terms of who God was, and here's this person claiming to be equal with God, and they were super angry about the whole thing. So they were not only uh, able, they were able to hear, but not accept it, because it never took any root. The third soil is the one we're able to hear, but not accept because of the clutter and the other distractions that are in people's hearts. Well, that'll be a lot of fun when we get to that one, won't it? The fourth one, as I've mentioned, is the only soil that is described as good. By the way, if you want to understand that second one, they're able to hear but not accept the word. I think of the parable of the father that had the two sons. Remember that parable? He comes to his sons and he says, listen, he goes to the oldest first and he says, listen, I need you to work in the fields today out in the vineyards. Would you go and do it? And he says, no, not interested. And he sort of pushes back on his dad and says, no, I'm not going. Later on he gets there and goes, well, Okay, that was a bit rude. So he changes his mind, goes out and works in the field. He comes to the, the younger son and he says, listen, I need you to go and do it. And the son says, yeah, I'd be happy to do it, Dad. And then he gets off, and, but never shows up. It's, it's uh, like what my son and I used to talk about. He used to ghost me when we were texting each other. I'd, we'd start a conversation, then I'd text him back, and like, I'd never hear from him. He just like, and then I'd hear from him like two days later. I'm kind of like, what happened to you? I uh, went to have a shower or something. Kind of like, what? Why do, why do you leave in the middle of a conversation like that? And then he promptly corrected me and said, Dad, sending texts back and forth isn't a real conversation. Okay. So that's kind of what the younger son does. He, he says, yeah, I'm gonna go, I'll go do this, Dad. And then he goes, like, find something better to do, and he doesn't go and do it. Doesn't even come back to his dad and say, I changed my mind. He just doesn't show up. 
which is pretty typical of our culture today, I think, in some respects. But the, but the point here is that as you understand these, the critical piece is that there's one soil that's good and, and accepts, the, and it's very specific, Jesus says, that's the person who actually hears and accepts and responds to it. The others are kind of wannabes, and they're not doing what they do. So the sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and they hear, but Satan immediately comes and takes the word away from them. Now, just a couple of things that are, I think, relevant. First of all, there's not an issue of ignorance in this. Every one of these soils say that a person hears the word that's proclaimed, whether it's the gospel or any other truth. So they're not being judged because of ignorance and I don't know what's going on and I haven't heard it and I don't know that. I mean, we do that all the time. We, uh, someone makes an appointment and someone doesn't tell us information we need and we just shrug our shoulders and go, hey, I didn't know. But that's not the case here. The issue is not ignorance. The second thing is that the problem is not with the quality of the seed. The seed is distributed to, in the same way to all four different kinds of soils, but only one accepts and hears and responds to it properly. So the seed is not the problem. It is the heart and the soil that it's sown on. And in this particular case, there's this sense that we have an adversary, humanity has an adversary that's going to do everything he can to roadblock it. So here's a couple of things that we need to think about. As believers, we must live with the conviction that every person who hears the word of God is facing the reality that Satan is aggressively seeking to snatch the word out of their heart. I don't know how many of you have recently shared the gospel with anybody, but you and I both know the anxiety that often gets in our own heart because we're not sure how they're going to react. We don't know if they, we, we kind of assume people are going to go, this is stupid, why are you talking to me about this? And other people are actually sometimes hostile about it. Don't get in my face about this. I don't want to hear about this sort of religious crutch that you need. And I believe the moment that we start talking to individuals, especially unbelievers, but we'll get around to us in a minute, when we talk to unbelievers about spiritual truth and about God's word, and especially about the gospel, we are sowing seed into their heart. Now, we have created all kinds of things in evangelism classes to try to cultivate people's heart and, and our relationship with them. There's nothing here that says that we're, we're cultivating the ground or anything. All it says is all we can do is throw the seed out. And we want to build relationships with people. We want them to understand who we are. We want to get rid of all the stereotypes and the problems and the prejudices that people have. But ultimately, we can't do that. We can help answer questions, we can build relationship, we can model God's grace and mercy and kindness and love and all those kinds of things so that we model the things that we say are true about followers of Christ. But when you look at this parable, people's, their heart is what their heart is. And I still work from the conviction that only God can change a heart. And our responsibility isn't to force them to agree. We're not to argue them into obedience. We're not just to, all that we really can do is we can plant the seed of the gospel in people's hearts. All we can do is share the, the, the amazing reality that Christ came as God's messenger to, to die on a cross for our sin and be buried and raised so that all those who put faith and trust in Christ and what he's done for us 
can find forgiveness of sin and removed from the judgment of God. They can be given the right standing with God because of Christ and that they can now uh, be children of the living God and belong to his family. But sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves that we have a responsibility way beyond what this text talks about. Now, there's true, there's passages that Paul talks about walking with wisdom and don't be stupid. Don't be these renegade rebels who are out shooting people because we think they're the enemy. That's not what the text talks about. The text is really clear. All that we can do is scatter the seed. And if we could just be convinced that that's my responsibility, and in a sense the rest is up to God, we'd probably find a lot more freedom in this idea of communicating the truth of God's word to people. But what we've done is we've created all this pressure that I have to cultivate the ground, I have to make sure it's right time, I have to build friendships for 350 years before I, 350 days, well, whatever. Some of you have been building it for 350 years and you still haven't shared the gospel, so the friendship evangelism thing. So we go through all kinds of things that can be good in and of themselves, but often become the very obstacle to the one responsibility we have, and that is simply to share the truth of God's word and the gospel with lost people. I had this wonderful conversation with one of the teachers at Notre Dame this last week. And uh, I won't tell you who it is, of course, but we had a great conversation. I was walking down the hallway and they said, wow, we haven't seen you very much. I said, well, neither is anybody else around here. I've been traveling. But, and they sort of asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm off visiting churches and encouraging pastors. If that's for me, just live, tell them I'll get back to them. Um, and so that person then suddenly said, you know, um, I've, I'll give you the short version, but it was basically, you know, I've read a couple of books that come from a Jewish perspective, and I really like human Jesus, but I don't believe he's God. And I said, really? I said, well, I'd be really interested to read the books that you've got. So they wrote me out on a card the books that they're reading. And I said, hey, I'd love to discuss this. She says, yeah, I love doing this. We haven't done it very often, but they're kind of like, yeah, I just don't believe that Jesus was God at all. And so I just want to come back and understand where that person's coming from and try to find other times to have conversations with them. It's kind of exhilarating in some ways. It's kind of fun to see what God could do, not how much I can do. And so in the heartbeat of this, we need to come back to the reality that there's power in the message of the gospel, not in my ability to necessarily communicate it. I don't know how much intelligence it takes to pick up seed and throw it. You don't do a lot of talking. You just spread the seed around. And sometimes we gotta get back to the simplicity of the responsibility that as individuals who are children of God, and I think this is an analogical comparison, Jesus clearly is the sower in this particular situation, but he's gonna ask his disciples to do the same thing. Go and make disciples. And you can't be a disciple maker if you aren't scattering seed. And so some of us need to pause a little bit to say, do you have any meaningful non-Christian friends at all? Or do you you spend your life avoiding those people because this is a scary world and I don't like being out there? I mean, we got to protect our kids and all those kinds of things that are legitimate concerns, but there are all kinds of Christians who don't have any meaningful relationship with people that don't know Jesus. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why? We have the message to the human condition. We have the glorious hope that's gonna rescue people. They are not our enemies. It's flesh and blood is not our enemies. It's Satan. 
And we just have to remember that he blinds the eyes of the unbelieving in such a way that he's going to try to convince them this is just stupid foolishness or they're going to be irritated by it. But there is the hope that some of this seed will fall on good ground, which we won't get into the theological realities of all that. But some will respond. And yet I think in many people's minds as Christians, we're convinced that, yeah, if I share the gospel, nobody's going to respond. I don't know how to answer all the questions. I don't know how to debate. I don't know my apologetics. I barely know how to communicate the gospel because I haven't practiced or even know how to do it in different situations. So I'm just going to be a pew sitter. I'm, I'm just going to sit in the back and watch other people do it. And it's difficult to come to a text like this and, and understand the mission of Jesus about rescuing lost men and women from a Christless eternity and go, you know, i got other things to do. So as we begin to look at this, we also have to realize that that's true for unbelievers, it's also true for us. I, I think the nature of this is stated in such a way that this could be true for the gospel, sharing it with unbelievers, but it's also true for you sitting here this morning. That as you hear me preach, hopefully, what the reality is of the, the text, that I believe some of the greatest spiritual warfare goes on right here on Sunday morning in your hearts and minds because Satan's going to say, yeah, I know this already. Yeah, I already know this. And my response at times is, and excuse me for saying it this way, I don't care what you know, what difference is it making? Like, we all know stuff. Nobody cares. What difference is it making? I mean, you can sit here until the cows come home, listen to the same stuff every week, and nothing changes, which kind of jumps ahead to the fourth soil, but the reality is, is, I believe as you're sitting there, there's Satan who's aggressively working in your mind and heart to distract you, do everything he can to snatch that word and remove it from your heart and mind in such a way that you won't think about it the moment you walk out the door. And you'll sit there and go, well, it's a nice morning. could have spoke shorter rather than longer. That would have been nice. Satan can do all kinds of things, you know. I like the first song. didn't like the second one. But Satan is aggressively attacking your heart and mind, and he wants to see do everything he can to snatch the reality of these truths away from your heart and mind so that it, you won't even give it a second thought. And the lack of understanding of God's word, especially the gospel, is not so much about common sense, but a spiritual battle for the heart and mind of any individual. It is especially true for the gospel when we speak to them, individuals who don't know Jesus and have not come to saving faith, but it's also true of us every time we pick up the Bible in the morning to read it in our personal devotions, whether it's the podcast you listen to it, the messages on Sunday morning, or any other kind of context, you are involved in a spiritual battle against someone who will do everything he can to destroy your confidence in the word of God, the hope that you're to have in it, and your conviction that it makes any difference to life at all. Satan's aggressive strategy to snatch the word from people is evidenced by the fact that the word sounds like foolishness or it's a stumbling block. So what does that look like in our life and in unbelievers? Well, let me just give you a list. I've sort of mentioned them already. 
The word will be heard, but it'll remain meaningless. Yeah, it was nice. Nothing really earth shaking. The attitude of the hearer is indifferent to the word. You know, Brad, it'd be really nice if you could preach like so-and-so because they, like, make us laugh. They got the best jokes. They, they're, they're a fantastic communicator. Sorry, you're just stuck with me. The hearer will not feel any conviction to that truth, especially in this one, because Satan comes in so quickly that it's nice, but there's no real conviction even that I think a person even feels because Satan immediately goes in and before anything can germinate at all, he snatches it away. So there's not, at times for people, there isn't any conviction about anything. You know, sometimes I've had people come up to me and it's kind of like, did you like follow me around this week? Because like, it's not like you were speaking to me. I said, no, I actually don't have time to do that. If that's happening, that's all the spirit of God. I'm going to blame it on him. That's his stuff, not mine. And so there's times, and I think we'll see that in the next one when we do it, there's times that we feel great conviction about it, but sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. But this one, I don't think there's even time for any even conviction. It just sort of, yeah, it was nice. Maybe you slept through the, <laughs> through the time or whatever. There won't be any conviction of truth. Fourthly, the hearer will not spend any time thinking about examining or trying to understand the importance of truth for his or her life. They just won't. They, and there's other reasons we'll talk about next week, but it just won't mean. It, it just Satan will come along, snatch it up. It just won't resonate at all. Fifthly, the hearer will not find any relevance of truth for their life. The hearer hears but doesn't understand. Or I'll flip it around to say, yeah, I, I've heard all this. I know it. I mean, I may, not under, I may understand it, but like, yeah, I know this like the back of my eye. Do you know that I memorized this parable back when I was five years old? I know this. It's like quoting the Lord's Prayer. Of course, don't get me started on that or we'll be here for like ever. I, I know people that quote the Lord's Prayer left, right, and center. It's part of services, everything else, but it doesn't mean anything to anybody. The problem that familiarity breeds contempt is often true. But there is never any true commitment to apply one's life to that truth. I uh, was reading a story by Tim Keller this morning, and uh, he had a brother-in-law that would never wear a seatbelt when he drove the car. Obviously, they were in a state that that was the law, so they had to do it in states that, you know, wouldn't have that, wouldn't matter, but... He uh, used to really berate him about that. It's like, what's the matter with you? How come you're not putting a seatbelt on? And he wouldn't give really any substantive answers, but um, he just kept berating him about it and asking him about it. One day, he picked Tim up, and he got in the car, and his brother-in-law like, had a full seatbelt. And he noticed it immediately, and he goes like, like, what happened to you? What changed your mind? And uh, this is what his brother-in-law responded. He says, I went to visit a friend of mine in the hospital who was in a car accident and went through the windshield. He had two or three hundred stitches in his face. And I decided at that moment I better wear my seatbelt. And so Tim responded, did you not know that if you didn't wear your seatbelt you'd probably go through the windshield if you ever had an accident? He goes, yeah, of course I knew it. When I went to the hospital to see my friend, I got no new information at all, but the information I had became new. 
because now I started looking at it completely different. I looked at it from the perspective of the end results of not doing it, rather than the inconvenience of someone telling me what I should do. We know this in a real way. Just before the service started, my wife sent me a text saying, it's on her side of the family, but one of my, her sisters um, married a really nice, neat guy named Andrew, and we found out this morning that Andrew's younger brother was in a car accident in Kamloops, Canada, and probably won't make it. You know, the thing for us is that we kind of have our Christianity tucked into our back pocket and we know we're going to heaven. Life is really cozy. It's a mean, nasty world out there, but it's not my problem. And we don't realize how critical it is for us to be sowing the seeds of the gospel in people's lives, sometimes until it's long too late. Until you have a family member who doesn't know Christ, who passes away, and all of a sudden the reality of the fact that you will never see them again starts to weigh a little bit more heavily on your heart than it used to because I just didn't care. And I want to encourage you to consider the fact that we're in a real spiritual war. The God of this world is blinding the minds of unbelievers so that this gospel message, this hope that God gives to eternity, is the life preserver that he has sent to lost humanity. And sometimes I'm not sure whether that really grips our heart to the level it should and that our own hearts have been hardened to the reality of the gospel because we look at people and maybe we convince ourselves everyone's basically good or we don't want to disturb them or we don't want the backlash of someone who thinks this is foolish or maybe even frustrated with us because we would dare to share the hope of Jesus. So maybe the hardness of our heart begins with us because we've become totally indifferent to a world that's going to hell. Maybe Satan is continually snatches away that reality from our own hearts so that the end result, frankly, is we just don't care. And I hope it doesn't take an accident of your best friend or a family member or someone else to wake us up to the reality that this world isn't about us accumulating all the reputation and stuff in the world that we can do. So we're on mission to be sowers of the seed of the gospel in broken lives. So the question I wanna ask you this morning is Jesus tells this parable, are you hearing him? Do you hear his voice at all or am I just being a distraction by yakking on all morning. Let's pray together. Father, we see Jesus in a very intentional and strategic mission to call men and women through the gospel back to himself. For the Pharisees and scribes, they had been so caught up in their own religion that they didn't see 
the God-man right in front of him. In fact, Jesus irritated the teeth out of them because they would just simply not let go of their own worldview and what they controlled to surrender to the reality of the message of Jesus. We live in a world that it may be unseen but not unfelt that we are in a spiritual battle for our very lives. That every time we hear the word, we know that we've got an adversary. And yet the danger isn't so much that we have an adversary, but it's, there's a danger that maybe we've, our heart is more like a pathway than it is about good soil. And so we ask that you will help us allow your spirit to do the necessary things in our own heart so that our, the, the soil of our heart is good soil so that something fruitful comes when we rub shoulders with the truth of your word. God forbid and help us not to be hearers only. So in our feebleness and in our weakness,